0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake
1: Tapper. Right now, there are more than half a million coronavirus cases in the United States. And a staggering death toll, now more than 23,000 people, to be precise, 23,070. This time last week, that number was about 10,000, meaning we have seen more than double the deaths in the U.S. just in the last seven days. The director of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, saying this morning that the United States is nearing the peak of the pandemic, and on the other side of the peak will come decisions about when and how to reopen the country. The most significant development today in the U.S., Governors are banding together because leadership, like nature, abhors a vacuum. The governors of six northeast states announced this afternoon they are now working together and to reopen responsibly. And just in the last few minutes, we heard that the governors of Washington state, California and Oregon are announcing a western states pact on on another shared approach. Governors Taking the lead. Earlier today, President Trump tweeted that it is his decision to make, writing in part, quote, a decision by me in conjunction with the governors and input from others will be made shortly about reopening the country. It is worth noting that President Trump never himself made any national order on shutting down the country. He has refused to accept any responsibility for the many ways the U.S. was unprepared for this crisis, although now he appears to be claiming that reopening the U.S. is his decision. It's unclear what the path is out of this for the United States in general. The president has yet to offer any specific roadmap. But Dr. Anthony Fauci told me yesterday that there is a huge risk with any notion of reopening the country all at once.
2: If you just say, "Okay, it's whatever, you know, May 1st, click, turn, turn the switch on. Obviously, if you do it in an all or none way, there's an extraordinary risk of there being a rebound
1: rebound for the coronavirus, we should underline. And there is a new example of how that could happen in one part of the country, a model presented by Los Angeles County officials predicting that up to 95% of Los Angeles residents will be infected with coronavirus if the stay-at-home order would be lifted right now, though no one is talking about doing that. If the current measures are maintained, that number of infections will hover around 30% according to the projection of that model. In the virus epicenter of New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo said today that he believes the worst may be over, but he cautioned restrictions must stay in place, as CNN's Jason Carroll now reports.
2: For the first time in history, every state is under a disaster declaration at the same time. The national death toll numbers are staggering, and yet in New York, the epicenter of the pandemic, there are indications the number of infected is leveling off. Here's the good
3: news. The curve continues to
2: flatten. Across the country, the number of hospitalizations is down. The U.S. Surgeon General says it appears the nation's hotspots, places such as New York, New Jersey, Detroit and New Orleans, are all showing some signs of improvement. Dr. Jerome Adams tweeting this morning, in the midst of tragedy, there is hope. Social distancing and mitigation is working. There is a light at the end of this dark tunnel. And today, governors from New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Delaware, and Pennsylvania announced they're forming one working group between them to come up with a coordinated
3: plan to reopen. We should start looking forward to reopening, quote unquote, but reopening with a plan and a smart plan because if you do it wrong, it can backfire. And we've seen that in other places on the globe. Everyone is very anxious to get out of the house, get back to work, get the economy moving. Uh, Everyone agrees with that.
2: Even as President Trump insists, he will be the one to decide when the country reopens, despite never issuing a nationwide lockdown and leaving that up to the states. Health officials say that reopening the country will likely have to happen section
4: by section. This pandemic has affected different parts of the country differently. Um, We're looking at the data very carefully, county by county by county, and we will be assessing that.
2: Still this morning, Los Angeles County health officials reported seeing its highest number of COVID deaths in a 48 hour period. 31 people died. The U.S. military says a sailor on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt has died from COVID-19. To date, more than 2,900 service members have tested positive for the virus. And the economic impact continues to take a toll. Disney announced it will furlough 43,000 Walt Disney World employees starting April 19th. And part of the nation's food supply in jeopardy as one of the nation's largest pork processing plants now closed until further notice. 238 employees at Smithfield Foods in Sioux Falls, South Dakota tested positive for coronavirus. That number of infected accounts for more than half of the state's total. So again, Jake, not only do you have Northeastern governors banding together to come up with a reopening plan, you now have governors on the West Coast in california and washington and oregon doing the same uh governor cuomo saying for his part when the state does reopen it's not going to be just like flicking a switch he says it's not going to be instant in terms of getting back to normal jake
1: all right jason carroll thank you so much joining me now as always cnn chief medical correspondent dr sanjay gupta sanjay good to see you well, tell me how significant you think it is uh, that these governors, uh, the Northeast governors um, or m- not including New England itself, but, but many of the Northeast governors, Cuomo, Murphy of New Jersey, etc and the governors of the West Coast, Washington State, Oregon, California, mm-hmm. are creating these regional PACs, working groups to establish protocols on reopening while still fighting this virus. Is this something that you think is happening because no one else is doing it on a, on a federal level?
5: Uh, yeah, in part. I mean, you know, I think there's this acknowledgement that uh, we know the House, as uh, Governor Murphy put it, the House is still on fire. But, uh, you know, this is all about trying to plan ahead. And, we, and there should have been planning ahead all along. But we certainly need to be doing it now. We don't want to send the message that it's time to sort of loosen up uh, stay at home restrictions and things like that at all. But we need to do these things and we need to be thinking in creative ways. You know, I I listened to the entire press conference, Jake. I mean, everything from, people may need to be screened, even tested before coming into a workplace. People may be taking their own temperature at home and when they arrive at a workplace, uh, masks, uh, you know, for certain uh, essential workers, things like that. But also, you know, how are we gonna invest in touchless technologies to try and reduce uh, the likelihood of, uh, of continuing to transmit this virus? These are all things that they need to think about acknowledging that, um, as someone once said to me, Jake, an infection anywhere is an infection everywhere. So instead of uh, looking at this by a state-by-state basis, starting to look at this by regions, because a virus you know, doesn't, doesn't respect state borders. So it does, it does make a lot of sense, Jake, to be doing this, but doesn't mean it's gonna be happening anytime soon, though.
1: Right, of course, the death rate has more than doubled in the last week, um, and that's with most, most people, particularly in places hit hard by the virus, adhering to these stay-at-home orders and social and physical distance guidelines, um, one can only imagine what the death troll would be like if we were doing nothing. I mean, 22,000 is a horrific number, but if we were doing nothing, it would be much, much higher.
5: It, it could be doubling every few days, uh, Jake, and you know, you, you know, this is something we all learn in terms of math, but looking at uh, you know, logarithmic sort of growth, it's, it's significant. You know, I, have, I was having these conversations over the weekend, Jake, and someone said to me, uh, it, it's striking to me that the risk uh, to any individual American right now uh, is low, again, of, of, uh, of getting sick from this virus. And I said, well, yes, that's true. But the reason that's true is because what's happening in America today is something that we've never seen before. Uh, these stay-at-home orders, they are having an impact. But in order to get to that lower risk, as, as has been described, which is true, It's because we're doing these things, you know, and I guess that's maybe not a point lost on a lot of people, but if we weren't doing these things, nothing about the the pathophysiology of the virus has changed. It is a highly contagious, pretty lethal virus. That, That part is still true. The reason the numbers are as low, and they're sad numbers, as you point out, Jay, but the reason they're as low as they are is because of what we're doing. Again, I think that that's a fundamental point, maybe most people get, but I think it's worth reiterating.
1: I mean, you think most people get it, but uh, you see talking heads uh, on Fox and other places uh, continuing to equate the coronavirus with the regular flu and acting as though it will be outrageous if the death toll for this uh, coronavirus uh, is less than the seasonal flu and still not getting it, still not understanding that if we acted with the coronavirus, the way we act with the flu, which is just basically flu shots and washing your hands, that we would be in the hundreds of thousands.
5: There, there is no vaccine for this. Uh, we know as a basic starting point. We don't. We don't know what the exact fatality rate of this virus is. It probably is different in different places because. It's highly dependent on how the medical systems respond to this virus, but it's a bad—it's a bad virus, and we have no vaccine to it. There is no native immunity to it. Even with the flu, even if you're someone who didn't get the flu shot, you still have some protection. Why? Because you've been exposed to a variation of that flu shot in years past. If you've lived on this planet, you probably have some natural immunity to it. You should get the flu shot, but you'd still have some protection. With this, we just have no protection. It's—it's a—that—that's—that's that's the significance. When, when public health experts keep calling it a novel coronavirus, it's a, it's a new right. thing.
1: The Trump administration uh, is looking at a, uh, for the president to potentially call for a partial reopening of different parts of the country. It ultimately, will be left up to governors uh, and mayors. Uh, they're talking about potentially a, a May 1st date. But according to the, the model that the White House uses, I think it's from the University of Washington, a, a thousand deaths are predicted just on May 1st. I don't understand the, the May 1st time frame. Do you?
5: No, I don't understand it. And if they are abiding by that model, uh, they should be looking at all parts of it um, because what that model goes on to say is is two very important things. One, And they put a number on this, Jay. Chris Murray and his team over at University of Washington say that it has to get below 0.03%. Now, I you know do the math on that. That's about 90 people... Per day or so, uh, fewer than that would 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 um, be dying in the country on any given day. Ninety, as you mentioned, May first, they say. I think it's a thousand uh, if that's what the number shows. So it's nowhere close. But also, um, you know, not to belabor this point that Jake, you and I've been talking about for three months, testing has been important, is currently important, and will continue to be important. And I'm talking about testing for the virus. Antibody testing is important as well, but the viral testing, the swab testing is always gonna be important because as we start to think about reopening, you still gotta find people who are infected. You still have to be able to isolate them. You still have to be able to trace their contacts. It's a laborious task, but it's important to get to that point where we can reopen the country. Without it, yeah, first of all, you can't find those people. Second of all, I think there's gonna be a little bit of a crisis of confidence because you don't know is the person next to you possibly infected or not. So there's still gonna be that, that, that worry, Jake. I've read some reports that saying in order to be able to contact Trace alone, find the contacts of people who are infected, it could take hundreds of thousands of people, Jake. We don't have that infrastructure in place right now.
1: Yeah, still way behind in testing uh, per capita. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, thank you so much. Uh, be sure to tune into Sanjay's podcast, yeah. Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction. It's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Coming up, uh, fretting about Dr. Fauci, new reporting about what President Trump has been telling friends about the infectious diseases expert leading the pandemic response. Plus, Boris Johnson says, I owe them my life. The prime minister's new statements leading many to wonder if his condition was in fact much more dire than the government admitted at the time. Stay with us. The White House issuing a statement today saying President Trump has no intention of firing Dr. Anthony Fauci, the country's top infectious diseases expert and member of his coronavirus task force. That statement was in response to questions from the media about Fauci's future, which came after President Trump shared a tweet that called for Fauci's firing and spent the weekend calling his friends to discuss the doctor, according to sources. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, Fauci's latest offense in the eyes of Trump's most ardent supporters is that in an interview with me on CNN yesterday, he told the truth. He acknowledged that lives may have been saved if the government had been quicker to put social distancing and stay at home measures in place. We did a clinical trial.
6: The White House is now denying that Dr. Anthony Fauci's job is in danger after President Trump elevated a Twitter post calling for him to be fired. In a statement today, White House spokesman Hogan Gidley called the media chatter ridiculous and said President Trump is not firing Dr. Fauci. But it was the president, not the media, who started the speculation. Yesterday, Trump retweeted this post from a former Republican congressional candidate that ended with these four words, time to fire Fauci. Hours earlier, the nation's top infectious disease specialist had acknowledged to CNN's Jake Tapper that shutting down the country earlier would have saved lives.
2: You could logically say that if you had a process that was ongoing and you started mitigation earlier, you could have saved lives. Obviously, no one is going to deny that.
6: The president has continued to lash out following an extensive report in The New York Times that documented his slow response to the coronavirus. While Trump has publicly praised Fauci, he has privately complained that he often contradicts him and at times he's refused to let him answer questions. Fauci has faced criticism from some Trump allies for initially being skeptical of the proposed travel restrictions before endorsing them in late January. A New York Times investigation found Trump squandered the time those restrictions bought him to take tougher measures in the U.S.
7: Banning dangerous foreign travel that threatens the health of our people, and we did that early, far earlier than anyone would have thought.
6: The New York Times says senior officials urged Trump to impose social distancing measures long before he did, a detail Fauci confirmed on State of the Union.
2: We look at it from a pure health standpoint. We make a recommendation. Often the recommendation is taken, sometimes it's not. But we, it is what it is. We are where we are right now.
6: Trump's pushback on his top public health officials comes as he's weighing when to reopen the country, a decision he wrongly claimed today is up to him, not the nation's governors. He tweeted, some in the fake news media are saying that it is the governor's decision to open up the states, not that of the president of the United States and the federal government. Let it be fully understood that this is incorrect. But that's not what the president said when it came to shutting the states down.
7: I would leave it to the governors. I like uh, I like that from the standpoint of governing, and I like that from the standpoint of even our Constitution.
6: Jake, more of the president's allies are also now continuing this afternoon to criticize Dr. Fauci, including Andy Biggs, who is now the chair of the House Freedom Caucus, He said in a radio interview today that he believes Dr. Fauci has emasculated the economy and taken a meat cleaver to it. And he said, quote, I think it's time for him to move along.
1: Uh huh. All right, Kaylin Collins, thanks so much. A partisan fight is stopping more money from flowing to small businesses in the United States. Republicans warn that funding for the Paycheck Protection Program, an emergency small business loan program, could run out this week. And the Republican solution is to pass a bill focused solely on providing more money for that program. Senate Democrats argue that any new bill should also include more money for states and for hospitals, for food stamps, and to fund widespread testing for coronavirus. Joining me now is CNN business anchor, Julia Chatterley. Julia, let's start with uh, a question. I don't even know if the answer exists. The program, the original Paycheck Protection uh, Program, was about $350 billion dollars. How much of that money has gone out the door to these businessmen and businesswomen who need it so desperately?
8: It's such a great question. From what I hear, just 1% of all the cash promised is now in the hands of small and medium-sized businesses. I mean, it's a shockingly small sum. From what I'm understanding, if you look at it, and it's the same situation ongoing, it's far more easy to get the money promised by the banks and it is to get approval from the small business administration that remains the choke point here and that's going to continue to be an issue it doesn't negate the need for more cash however
1: of course but but i'm just talking about if the republicans are talking about it's going to run out this week and only three billion out of 350 billion has been dispersed it certainly makes me question that that claim what happens if republicans and democrats are not able to reach a deal And the small business program, hypothetically, were to run out of money, whether this week or next. How severe would the consequences be?
8: You know, this is beyond severe. I spoke to a former chief of the Small Business Administration this week, Karen Mills. She said to me, even in a best case scenario, 20 percent of small businesses here could fail. We're talking six million small businesses. Imagine the job losses we're talking about. This is unmanageable, unimaginable. More cash is required, Jake.
1: When the program launched, small businesses had to get the emergency money from banks. But as of last weekend, I'm told, they now can get the same emergency loans from other companies, uh, including PayPal and companies like that. That seems like it, it could make something of a difference.
8: I think this could be key these fintech players as they're called are far more agile they tend to lend to far smaller businesses those with less than five employees so in terms of getting cash to the lifeblood of the economy this could be a real game changer that's the good news the bad news is these guys still have to get approval from the Small Business Administration as well. So, again, we've got the same choke point here, getting cash out there. I think we should be talking about a solution that bypasses the Small Business Administration at this stage. I hear those talks are beginning.
1: Hmm, Interesting. All right, CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley, as always, thank you so much. Thank
8: you.
1: We have this breaking news for you now. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has officially endorsed his former rival, former Vice President Joe Biden, for president.
4: So today I
0: am asking all Americans, I'm asking every Democrat, I'm asking every Independent, I'm asking a lot of Republicans to come together in this campaign to support your candidacy, which I endorse.
8: I I know.
1: CNN's Jessica Dean uh, is live for us now. Uh, Jessica, uh, this endorsement came a few months before The endorsement that he uh, Sanders did for Hillary Clinton four years ago, this Mm -hmm. could be significant for Joe Biden.
9: That's exactly right, Jake, this just coming five days after he announced that he's suspending his campaign. And you saw it right there, that visual of Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders together on that live stream, uh, two men who represent these uh, two wings of the Democratic Party coming together and really trying to highlight all of the places where they can really find common ground. And to that end, they announced today that they'll be forming six different task forces uh, to focus on different areas of policy, including climate change, criminal justice, the idea that They're going to bring together people from both of their campaigns to really look at these big issues and try to find some common ground that will appeal to all Democrats. But again, Jake, big news for the Biden campaign uh, today and this coming, as you mentioned, uh, much earlier in the process than it did in 2016.
1: All right, Jessica Dean, thank you so much. Uh, Up next, I'm going to talk to one top doctor at a hospital that has had to convert its cafeteria into a room for patients in order to be able to fit more in. Stay with us new jersey getting hammered by coronavirus outbreaks with the second highest number of confirmed cases in the country behind only new york in just 24 hours the garden state saw more than 3,200 new confirmed cases one new jersey hospital even is converting its cafeteria into space to hold the onslaught of patients and joining me now to discuss this is the chief physician executive at that hospital hackensack meridian health dr daniel Varga, Dr. Varga, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for the work you're doing. You're converting the cafeteria to hold non-intensive care unit patients. You've openly talked about employees at your hospital getting sick, contracting coronavirus. Tell us how serious, how dire conditions are at your hospital.
10: Well, you know, we've got right now about 1,900 patients in our acute care hospitals, uh, if you look counter our nursing homes and other uh, areas that we provide care, we're up around 2,600 patients total. Uh, we've actually, at Hackensack University Medical Center, where you're talking about the cafeteria expansion, uh, running just shy of 200 patients in ICU beds, uh, a huge chunk of that being COVID patients, and most of those folks are on ventilators. Uh, but what we did do with the cafeteria, and this is something that we've been doing continuously, is converting space Uh, mostly to convert normal hospital bed space into ICU space. But in this situation, knowing that we had taken away normal hospital bed space, we created a 72-bed unit down in our cafeteria in Mm -hmm. about a three-to-five-day period of time. Uh, And we probably have that about uh, two-thirds filled right now.
1: And, doctor, do you have enough uh, personal protective equipment, uh, enough N95 masks, enough ventilators for for the needs of your healthcare workers and the needs of your COVID-19 patients?
10: So Jake, right now we've, you know, in the three big buckets of things you worry about, space, staff, and materiel, you know, we're actually doing pretty well with uh, space, doing pretty well uh, with materiel. And I think we've we've done well with ventilators. Uh, We've acquired a lot on our own. We've been lucky enough to get some from the national stockpile as well. We've been very good at moving them around our system to make sure uh, that everybody has them when they need them. N95 masks are going to be a challenge for the next couple months. We are actually sourcing N95 masks anywhere we can, as well as uh, sourcing the international equivalents of N95s. But right now we're pretty good with that. Our biggest challenge right now is is our staff, and we've got a phenomenal set of frontline caregivers. But, you know, you can make beds and you can get equipment, but if you don't have people to to staff those beds, and take care of those folks uh doesn't really do you a lot of good our folks are doing a great job though we're staying ahead of it
1: you worked on one of the first ebola cases in the united states Uh, you have experience with outbreaks have you ever seen anything like what we're going through right now
10: nothing like this i mean um you know the scope of this is just so profound i mean it's You know, our our Ebola uh, crisis arose with uh, three patients in Dallas. Uh, It was obviously a worldwide uh, issue, but the U.S. impact was three folks and then folks who happened to come to hospitals from overseas. But this is a scenario that touches everybody. And I'll bet there's not anybody out there in your audience right now who hasn't been personally touched uh, by COVID-19. The other piece is that, you know, we had had a little bit of experience with previous Ebola outbreaks, We've never seen this one before. So uh, that makes it particularly challenging.
1: Uh, Your governor, Governor Murphy, said yesterday um, that there are some projections suggesting that New Jersey has hit its peak. Um, Other projections show the state has not hit its peak yet. What what do you think as somebody who's on the front lines of this? and, And if you think the peak is still potentially weeks away, how are you preparing to handle that?
10: Well, you know, Jake, knock on wood, uh, it looks like uh, we've at least slowed the amount of growth. Uh, over the last week, our admissions related to COVID-type uh, individuals, either p- people under suspicion or confirmed COVID cases, dropped about 40 percent uh, from the beginning of the week to the end of the week. That's about 100 admissions per day drop. Uh, but that said, we, we are still growing. I mean, uh, three weeks ago, we were growing at 15 percent, uh, a week before that, the week after that, we were growing at about seven percent. Last week, we kind of grew at about the two to three percent. So clearly, we're seeing some positive trends. What we really want to see is the sort of uh, curve that New York is starting to experience, where you see that rapid drop uh, in hospital admissions, and uh, and actually couple that with uh, the good news of people being extubated from ventilators and discharged from the hospital.
1: I was uh, just reading a story, it wasn't, it's not new, it's a few weeks old, but NJ.com was reporting that your hospital has enacted a, a DNR, a do not resuscitate uh, order for coronavirus patients. Um, tell us about the decision to make that move.
10: So we're actually uh, trying to build what we call a scarce resource allocation uh, policy inside our organization. And we're really trying to move in concert with the state of New Jersey. Uh, the good news is, as of right now, there's no rational, uh, no need to make decisions about triaging uh, who gets a ventilator, who doesn't, because between what we've done internally, what the state's done, uh, what we've been able to get from uh, national resources, we've managed to stay ahead of that. But uh, to a large extent, we've wanted to kind of get ahead of, uh, of the situation in case the surge gets to a place where it absolutely taps out our resources.
1: All right, Dr. Daniel Varga, thank you so much, and good luck to you and the staff at the hospitals you you supervise and the incredible work you're doing.
10: Thanks so much, Jake. We appreciate it.
1: Coming up next, horrific new images just into CNN. One hospital in the U.S. so overwhelmed with corpses, some are being stored anyplace employees can find space. Stay with us. Some new photos from Sinai Grace Hospital in Detroit capturing just how dire and overwhelming the pandemic is in the city of Detroit. Bodies filling freezer units, some even being stored in spare rooms originally meant for sleep studies. I want to bring in CNN's Ryan Young, who's in Detroit right now. Ryan, uh, you recently visited this hospital. These pictures are are just shocking when you see
7: them. Yeah, this is a tough story, Jake. In fact, we've been working in this area for about two weeks now, talking to all the people who've been affected by COVID-19. And what we started to do is when we started talking to those heroic first responders all across the city, they started sharing stories with us. And this is one of the groups who started talking about what was going on inside this hospital. Let us share you some of the pictures here, show you some of the pictures here. Some of it's disturbing, but the first picture that I want to show you is inside what is considered a sleep study room. We're told they had to store some of the bodies in here for at least one 12 hour shift, um, maybe because they were running out of space in other rooms. Then we uh, have another shot inside a freezer um, that they brought in where you could see bodies on top of each other. And as we were talking to staff, they were mortified by what they were having to do. In fact, we talked to several ER workers who basically told us not only were they worried about staffing shortages and the fact of so many patients coming in, they were concerned about the patients who were there that they were trying to care for, but they never wanted anyone to lose a loved one to be stuck in a space like this. And in fact, a lot of folks even went as far as to say, um, the two sources told us at least, they wanted to make sure that they had enough bed space for the folks who were inside the ER. The last portion that I will tell you this, two people did die in the hallway inside that hospital. The hospital has said they surged Hmm. more employees into the area to sort of help patients. So Jake, this is an ongoing story that we will continue to follow.
1: Just horrifying. Ryan Young, thank you so much. Appreciate it. In addition to the scenes we just showed you, doctors are also finding themselves in the grueling position of having to arrange conversations between critically ill patients and their family members who are not allowed to visit them. One doctor sharing with The New York Times a text she sent to her colleagues writing, quote, you guys are going to see me with red puffy eyes for the next few weeks. I just feel like I went into this specialty to save lives. And it kills me that we can't save everybody, unquote. Joining me now, Andrea Bonnier, a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Georgetown University, who we check in with every week, if not more. And Andrea, we, we talked to a psychiatrist last week who said that healthcare workers now and when this is all over are going to have post-traumatic stress the same way that uh, first responders after 9-11 or veterans after Vietnam did. Um do you think it will be that stark and, and what should healthcare workers be doing right now to cope?
9: Yeah. I certainly hope it won't be that stark, but I do think there's reason to be concerned that it will. This is so unprecedented because the normal human ritual of being able to gather around a dying loved one, you know, the doctors are, are basically the people who are having to witness that being completely disrupted and having to use some stopgap measure to try to help people communicate with their loved ones on their deathbed. This is something that is just not seen in these numbers. and. How hasn't been seen in these numbers. And a lot of physicians that I've talked to have also said, you know, the, the aspect of being alone and, and perhaps distanced from their families, their own families, is very difficult here too. You have physicians who who may have signed up to put their own lives at risk to some extent, but they didn't sign up to put their families' lives at risk. And so they're grappling with that anxiety as well about whether or not just by virtue of the work that they're trying to do, they're endangering their own loved ones. And so it's really an unprecedented situation and it's, and it's heart-wrenching. And so I do think we are gonna see some ripple Effects for a very long time.
1: And then it's it's obviously tragic no matter what when you lose a family member, but people are being denied by this virus uh, the ability to grieve in the traditional ways. Uh, funeral, funeral homes have stopped. Wakes, cemeteries are limiting graveside gatherings. Some local officials are, are limiting the number of people for religious services. Some people who are grieving are in quarantine themselves. What do you say to people like that? What's the what's the best thing they should be doing to grieve given these horrific circumstances?
9: Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of that ritual is is so important for finding meaning. But I would say there are a couple of things to keep in mind. And one is that there are still ways to find meaning in your grief, even when it's so far sort of being postponed being able to gather there are still ways to connect as much as possible to find symbolism in the loss to write to draw to talk about it over video conferences as awkward as that sounds but i think yeah that's part of this that is just so heart-wrenching. We have such a human need to be able to help each other and touch each other and gather. And that's why this particular tragedy is so different than what we've seen before. But I think part of what people need to do is to realize that if if we can connect to our values during this time, so in other words, for instance, the doctors on the front lines that are struggling so much with how they're not saving as many lives as they want and they're watching people dying alone, they can still go back to those original values of what brought them into medical school and the medical profession and think about how, even though, you know, they are not there to save a life in that particular moment, they are still offering help. They are still offering a human connection to somebody who is in need of it. Because ultimately, part of how grief, how, how we come out of the other side of grief is to find meaning. In it and to find connection with with how it's impacted our lives in a way that that helps us move forward and again i've spoken with other physicians that say you know we're going to learn from this part of the pain and the chaos and the trauma that we're going through right now can help inform the practice of medicine for the future and that can be a way of finding meaning in all of this heartache too
1: and, and then quickly dr bownier if you could um it, it's obviously traumatic for not just uh healthcare workers, not just people who lose somebody, but it's traumatic for everybody going through this. I mean, it's a worldwide trauma, people uh, having to basically be prisoners in their own homes in some ways. Uh, What's your just general advice to people watching right now who are maybe losing it a little bit or uh, having difficulty explaining to their kids uh, why we're all going through this? What's the best advice you can offer?
9: Yeah. I think it's two pronged. Number one, label your feelings. There's a lot of data that says that if we can just allow ourselves to say, yes, this is grief. I'm scared. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm confused. Labeling those feelings, putting them into words, helps them feel more manageable and helps them de- helps us derive meaning from them. And second, pay attention to your body. Whenever we talk about trauma, we're talking about it being, you know, it's, it's embedded in our body. So take care of your body as well. And that's so important.
1: All right, Dr. Andrew Bonnier, thank you so much as always. Good to see you. It is a scene that makes many of us shudder. People hanging out in bars and restaurants amid this pandemic. The controversial gamble that one nation is making and the results so far next. And. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is out of the hospital and on the mend from his battle with coronavirus, but it appears his condition may have actually been a lot worse than Downing Street led on. CNN's Bianca Nobila joins me now from London. Bianca, there's some confusion over just how dire Prime Minister Johnson's condition actually was.
11: In the sense that one day he was in hospital and the de facto deputy prime minister said he was still governing the country from his hospital bed, and then later that day he moved into the intensive care unit. So that does raise some questions over how ill he actually was. From what I can gather from government sources, it wasn't that Downing Street was being economical with the truth, it was the fact that they were just being economical with information. The prime minister is a very private individual, and at the best or worst of times, Downing Street don't want to produce the image of a Prime Minister who is vulnerable or frail, particularly at such a critical juncture in a national crisis. And it's not actually unprecedented. If we look back to even Boris Johnson's own political hero, Winston Churchill, during the Second World War, he really underplayed the bouts of pneumonia that he had that meant that he ended up in hospital. There have been other Prime Ministers who have done the same. Where this might raise legitimate concerns going forward is question marks over how transparent Downing Street are being overall. There's been a lot of criticism over the government's strategy of herd immunity in the early days. Then they backtracked and said that that was never their strategy at all. The same kind of mixed messaging concerns came out of Downing Street around the lockdown. Boris Johnson said that he was shaking hands and then there was social distancing implemented. So even though the Prime Minister's own health potentially they could have been more transparent at the Time, but I think what's most important here, Jake, when now over 11,000 people have been confirmed to have died from coronavirus in the UK, is how transparent and how forthcoming the government are actually being with their strategy going forward.
1: All right, Bianca Nabila, thank you so much. In China, the government there is restricting publication of research on the origins of coronavirus, which, of course, Originated in Wuhan, China. CNN's Ivan Watson joins me now from Hong Kong. And Ivan, the, uh, the Chinese government now is saying that it needs to approve any coronavirus related research before publication.
3: That's right. And we learned about this from the web pages of several Chinese universities. And after we inquired about these apparent new restrictions, those universities withdrew the web pages. But what they had shown were that there were these new regulations. Anybody wanting to publish research about the origin of the virus, uh, they had to get permission first and they would have to apply to a state committee to try to do that. We've tried to reach out to a number of different Chinese ministries to get an explanation for why this is happening and and haven't heard back yet. Uh, A number of doctors and researchers that we've talked to about this, independent researchers, have been disappointed at the very least, have have said that this lacks of censorship and it could create obstacles to sharing valuable data and research with the rest of the world while all countries are struggling with this deadly disease. It also says something about what a, a titanic political football, the questions of its origin are, especially because of the tensions between the Trump administration and China about how this pandemic really began. It was first documented in Wuhan, China, last December. Jake?
1: All right, Ivan Watson, thank you so much. Scandinavian countries reported the first coronavirus deaths, all of them at roughly the same time, but the countries have taken very different approaches to how to handle the coronavirus. Denmark, the second European country to impose a lockdown, Norway quarantined anyone coming back from abroad for two weeks. And then there's Sweden, which after refusing to shut down businesses, has seen 919 deaths, much higher than their two Scandinavian neighbors. CNN's Phil Black now looks at how Sweden's relatively laissez-faire approach to the deadly pandemic may have
4: dramatically impacted the spread. In these strange times, this is a strange sight. People just hanging out in bars and cafes, enjoying the sunny Easter weekend with friends and family. The coronavirus hasn't skipped Sweden, they're just dealing with it very differently. No forced closures, no lockdown. Some, including President Trump, think the country is betting everything on that controversial theory, herd immunity. Deliberately allowing the disease to move through the population so younger people with antibodies surround and protect the elderly and more vulnerable. Sweden
7: did that. The herd, they call it the herd. Uh, Sweden is suffering very, very
4: badly. Absolutely not true, says the Swedish government.
11: Our goal is the same as in most other countries. We want to save lives. We want to to hinder uh, the spreading of the virus.
4: Swedish health officials say their approach is designed to slow the virus where it spreads most and they don't think that's in bars and restaurants. Not convinced that lockdowns and these kind of things work very well. Anders Tegnell, Sweden's state epidemiologist, says their strategy's focus is asking everyone to avoid travel, work from home where possible and isolate if you feel unwell. And he says it's worked, flattening the curb, keeping critical cases within the capacity of the health system. I think one of the strong reasons for why we have been doing what we are doing in Sweden is that we feel that this is very sustainable. Uh, we can keep on doing this for, for long, for months then, without any real harm to society. But the numbers tell a different story. For a small country, Sweden has suffered a relatively high number of deaths, now at 919. The deaths per 100,000 people stands at 8.83. Higher than that of the United States at 6.73, but still far less than Italy at nearly 33. And there's one especially disturbing trend in Sweden's experience so far. Health officials say around half the total figure killed lived in homes for the elderly. The World Health Organization says it's imperative Sweden must do more and 2000 Swedish scientists have signed a petition because they fear current policies will mean many more deaths
8: our authorities think that they are in control but what we are saying is that the catastrophe is luring around the corner so you're not in control in two or three weeks
9: time
4: critics say Sweden is now trapped in a high-risk experiment Swedish officials believe on the right balance Either way, in the coming months, Sweden will have much to teach the world about how to best manage COVID-19. Now, Jake, if the Swedish health authorities are right, then the country is experiencing its peak right now. And they say it's going to be slow and manageable. But there are so many scientists who simply don't believe them, who say there's nothing in the international experience to suggest that can be true. They fear that while people are socializing, the disease, the virus is spreading uh, and there's a peak and there's another peak coming, a real spike. And they fear that's something that could really overwhelm the Swedish health system, Jake.
1: All right, Phil Black, thanks so much. Our coverage on CNN
0: continues right now.